0: Well, folks, we've got a big chunk of Scripture I'm going to try to do tonight. I will not be with you next Wednesday. And so we're going to try to cover some different passages this evening uh, because I really wanted to get through chapter uh, 22 between this week and next week. So I'm going to try to do it all tonight. Uh, But we're going to look tonight at the themes of sin and sacrifice and testing. Sin and sacrifice and testing. a little warm in here tonight, isn't it? Uh, So find chapter 19. And really in chapter 19 and 20 and 21... Uh, I'll make a few more comments on chapter 19. We'll just kind of fly over chapter 20 and 21. We're going to spend more time in 22. But uh, pick up reading with me in chapter 19. Again tonight we're looking at sin and sacrifice and testing. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servants' house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. Now, to me, that's probably the most disturbing verse, maybe in the whole Bible. Some people say chapter 22 of Genesis is the most disturbing. I think verse 8 is to me, but I am going to give you an alternate, alternate reading of that tonight. Uh Aha, may shed a lot of light on verse 8. He says, but but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons or daughters or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place." The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife And your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, "'No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you've shown great kindness to me by sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared.'" He said to them, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old and there is no man around here to give us children, as is the custom over all the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight. And you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son and she named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son and she named him ben Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites of today. Sin, sacrifice, and testing. Chapter 19 makes it quite clear that the sin of the men of Sodom was indeed homosexual relations. I mentioned last week when we were in chapter 18, some people have tried to want to say the sin of the city was lack of hospitality. Well, that's silly. Chapter 19 makes very clear what the sin was. The men of the city are so depraved that when they learn that new men have come to town, they want to have sex with them. Here's some new folks to have sexual relations with. We want them. That's what they were saying. And so they demand for Lot to bring them out. Now, Lot becomes a disgusting character Uh, in verse 8. I think we would agree with that because here's a father actually wishing to give his daughters to these men. Now, as I mentioned, there is another way that scholars say that the Hebrew here might be read. And I, for one, hope that they are right. I hope the alternate reading is right. Now, here's what the alternate reading says that Lot says to these men, guys... Uh, i've got two daughters who are virgins. What you're wanting to do is so disgusting with these men, these guests of mine uh, and i'm not going to let you do it uh I would just as soon I would just as soon bring my daughters out to you they're virgins now i'm not going to do that either. But I would, I would be just as soon or just as likely to bring my daughters out to you and let you have sex with them as I would to be to surrender my guest over to you. And so essentially in this alternate way of looking at the Hebrew, Lot's saying, look, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to bring them out to you just like I wouldn't bring my own daughters out to you. Now, I hope that's a legitimate way of reading it. Uh, You'll just have to make a decision on that. Verse 9, the men of the city don't like Lot's delays. They're appalled that he would judge them. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me over to Romans chapter 1. Because folks... This is a perfect commentary on what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. Find Romans chapter 1 if you would please. And we're going to begin reading in verse 18. In verse 18 Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to people, uh, is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created beings rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. What Paul's been doing in Romans 1 in verses 16 and 17 is showing the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel, when you embrace it, results in what? Salvation. Verse 16 and 17 The power of God as seen in the gospel means that when you embrace its truth, God regenerates you. God saves you. You're born again. And then you go on to live by faith. Now, beginning in verse 18, he turns that coin over. Okay? If you experience salvation when you embrace God's truth, what happens when you suppress God's truth? Exactly. You have the wrath of God because when you suppress and reject God's truth, you open the door to inviting in. A, a, a spiral downward. You, you, you follow his logic. The gospel's being preached. You embrace it. It brings salvation. You hear the gospel. You reject it. You suppress God's truth. And you invite disaster. There's a downward spiral. God's wrath is poured out. And, and, and then just all kind, in, in God's wrath, all kinds of bad things happen. Three times he says, God gives you over. God gives you over. God gives you over. God gives you over. He, he mentions that in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. God gave them over, verse 26, to shameful lust. And he talks about the same-sex relationships. Verse 28, God gives them over to a depraved mind. And the chapter ends by saying those who go down this path are not only doing it, but also giving approval to others who are doing it. So folks, we see what's going on back in Genesis 19 and what does it look like? It looks like what happens when people have rejected God's truth. Again, when we reject God's truth, then we will embrace anything. Not only will we embrace anything, but we'll encourage others also. And we'll be appalled at anyone who would try to stop us. Now, the depravity of these men of Sodom is seen even further in the fact that after they are blinded, what happens? After they're blinded, they repent. They bend on their knees down to Lot and say, Please forgive us and pray to your God that he will forgive us also. Is that what they do? No. What do they do? They've been struck blind by God and what are they still doing? They're groping around trying to find the door and still get at these men who were in Lot's house. Angels. Is that a picture of depravity? I think so. I think so. Well, verse 14, actually the sons-in-law were pledged in marriage to Lot's daughters. The marriages have not been consummated yet, as verse 8 made clear, because the girls are still virgins. Uh, Verse 18, look at verse 18. I told you we're just kind of doing a flyover of this chapter. Verse 18, Lot is certainly a character that does not inspire Love and good feelings toward him because here he is being spared. And even though he's being spared, what's he still trying to do? He's trying to renegotiate and bargain. He, he's so afraid that he'll be overtaken and die if he tries to go to the mountains. No, if he were going to die, the Lord would have killed him in Sodom. You follow what I'm saying? He's afraid if he tries to make it to the mountains, he's going to die. Lot, you're not thinking if you were going to die, God would have killed you while you were in Sodom. If God, God's not going to watch over you and get you and your family out of Sodom. And while you're going in the very direction of where God's told you to go, you think God's going to strike you dead? No. If he got you out of the city, he's going to watch over you till you get to the destination he wants you to go to. And so he's, you want to say, Lot, you've just experienced God's grace and protection and provision, and you're still trying to bargain and renegotiate. Very uh, unlikable character. Well, look at verse 26. In verse 26, it says, Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now actually, Jesus shed light on this. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, beginning there in verse 31, and Jesus is talking about what it'll be like when he comes again. It'll be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. He, he has said, he's just he's given the illustration about Sodom and Gomorrah and God raining sulfur down on them. Uh, he says in verse 31 On that day no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Well, as some scholars on the book of Genesis point out, it may not be the situation of what we tend to see about Lot's wife. When we consider what Jesus is saying here What do we think of typically She's walking, they're leaving the city She glances back And because she glances back She's turned into a pillar of salt Probably what's implied is They're leaving the city And she's like Lot, this is crazy This is crazy I'm I'm going back home. I'm going back home in in a day or two. When you come to your senses, maybe you'll come back home too. I'm going back home, Lot. And so she goes back home. And so she experiences what the rest of the city does. The sulfur and everything being rained down on them. But scholars say when you look at Jesus' words about saying don't return to your house, don't try to go back and get anything, remember Lot's wife, that what Jesus is actually saying is she returned to her house. Not that she just Looked over her shoulder and looked back and zapped. But she actually went back. And that cost her her life. So that may be a better way of understanding uh, what happened to her. Well, Lot's daughters have learned well the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Historians and Old Testament scholars tell us that even the pagan cultures around them looked down on incest. Even in the Code of Hammurabi, incest was forbidden. Now, scholars point out, Lot, Lot may have been drunk, true, but he wasn't passed out drunk. He participated. He was drunk enough that his judgment was impaired. But he wasn't drunk enough to prevent him from having sex. The children... And and so he's culpable too. The children born as a result of this incest ended up being standing enemies of the Israelites. The Moabites... And the Ammonites. So you see what's going on in this section of Genesis? Sin just keeps on spreading and spreading and spreading throughout the Old Testament narrative. The ugliness and perversion of sin. Yes, yes. Chapter 20, again, just flying over. Abraham is right back into his same old tricks again of lying about Sarah being his sister. Chapter 21, true to his promise, God allows Sarah to bear a son, Isaac, the son of promise. What happens? What happens is the boys grow up together. Sarah gets jealous. Gets jealous of Hagar and Ishmael. Wants them sent away. And God allows it. God promises that the boy will be spared. God will make a nation out of him. But what happens, what what happens that continues down to this very day? The continued animosity in the Middle East between the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael. And what was it that set up this whole unfortunate scenario? Abraham and Sarah decided to take matters into their own hands. They didn't see how it would be possible that God could give them a child together. So Sarah gives her handmaiden, Hagar, to Abraham. They've got to help God out. They don't believe God can do what he says. They try to help him out. The result is the birth of Ishmael and the continued problems to this very day. So again, what I'm pointing out to you is the continual pattern of sin. Even among those of whom we would expect a little better, right? What's that show us? What's that show us about the saints in the Old Testament? And the saints in the Bible. Are Are they perfect people that you and I can't relate to? No. Even these saints in the Bible, redeemed of the Lord, are very flawed characters and part of a fallen world. What we see is the ugliness of sin. Not make an excuse for it. I'm just saying, the ugliness of sin. Larry? Exactly, and that's the encouraging thing to see. We see how God used them, warts and all, God used them. God redeemed them and used them. Okay, quick fly, flyover of those chapters. Turn to, turn to uh, chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Isaac's a young man by this point, probably middle to late teenage years. Some would say he, he, might, even be, he might even be close to 20 at this point. You'll you'll find differences, but, but a teenager at least probably. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, Uh, Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants. They set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Now we're going to slow down a little bit here. And uh, first of all tonight, I want you to see the reality of testing. The reality of of testing we've seen the ugliness of sin and God's judgment on it now we see the reality of testing I'm sure that you know by now that life itself is full of tests. life is full of tests. Norman Vincent Peale said on one occasion, only people in cemeteries do not have trials and some of them are in deep trouble. (laughs) An earthquake happens and destroys lives and homes. A man or a woman loses their job. A family goes bankrupt. A car wreck takes a life. A child is stricken with a disease. On and on we could go with that. Well, the Christian life is like that too. No matter how committed we are to Jesus, somewhere along the line, your commitment to Him is going to be tested. In the book of Acts, God used test the test of persecution to do what? to build spiritual muscles, but he did something very specific after chapter 7 with the test of persecution. Anybody remember? Very good. He used the test of persecution to finally scatter his church, to get them out doing the Great Commission like he'd wanted them to do. Amen. Amen. Even Jesus underwent tests of obedience. We're told the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So here we come to Abraham again. uh, And we've just seen uh, Abraham disappoint us in chapter 20. But folks, what are we going to see here in chapter 22? Abraham's faith. He doesn't disappoint us at all. In fact, it's quite staggering the level of his obedience, isn't it? He trusts. He trusts. Verse 1 says that, that God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. Now if you're reading from the King James Version it says tempted because at the time of that translation it actually meant test or to prove a person to see how they would act. But we need to understand there is a big difference between testing and tempting and scripture is very clear on the fact that God does not tempt. God tests. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted and he himself does not tempt anyone. And so God tested Abraham, not tempted him. Now, again, as you read these chapters, uh, chapters 20 and 21 specifically, you get the impression that God has not spoken to Abraham for quite a while. Life has just sort of been coasting along for him. Isaac's been born, he's grown up, he's a young man, and it would certainly appear that God has been silent these years. Past couple of weeks, I've been telling you, when we get in these chapters in Genesis and how God spoke to Abraham, we tend to think it's like he got up every single morning, had breakfast, and and God appeared to him and spoke to him. And when you start putting the chronology together, that's not how it happened at all. Usually, years and years have passed between these occurrences. But then in verse 1, God speaks again to Abraham. And notice what Abraham answers. He says, here I am. The man who has been yielded to God thus far shows that once again... He's yielded. He's not won all of his battles. In fact, he has failed some of his battles. But nonetheless, what can we say about the overall testimony of his life? He's a man that's yielded to God, the Lord's provided. Talking about his age, you know, one writer has said the first half of his life and the first half of our lives give us the test. The next half supply the commentary. That's true, isn't it? That's so true about life. So, again, I want you to understand as you continue to grow as a Christian, tests are not unusual. In fact, they're part of the normal Christian life. Some people want to question their faith. Why am I going through this? If I were really a Christian, I wouldn't be experiencing hardship. I wouldn't be being tested like this. No, it may be just the opposite. It's because you're God's child that you are being tested. You know, in the book of Job, God allowed Satan to take everything away from Job to prove a point. And what was the point? To show that Job would be faithful. To teach Job about God's sovereignty, that God knows what he's doing even when we don't understand. God can be trusted when we don't understand. And God doesn't owe you and me an explanation, folks. He had to point that out to Job. God doesn't owe us an explanation. God knows what he's doing. He's faithful. And he showed that in the final analysis to Job. And again, he showed that Job was a righteous man so the reality of testing secondly tonight I want you to see the richness of testing tests come to us in a variety of ways think of all the ways that Abraham has been tested at this point he he's he one writer said he he's he's had the family test what was the family test Leave your father's household, your father's people, your father's land and go to a new land that I'm going to show you. He passed that test. And then there was the famine test. He got down to the new land and what happened? The cupboards went bare. He failed that test. He fled down to Egypt. Right? Right? Then there was the fellowship test. He and Lot, their, their workers, their herdsmen couldn't get along. And he says, hey, we're, we're family, we're kin, let's don't fight. God doesn't want us living like this. You pick which way you want to go and I'll go the other way. You take the first choice. Let's don't break fellowship over this between us. He passed that test, Right? Then the fight test. Some kings took Lot captive. And Abraham showed up and and rescued Lot. Then there was the fortune test. The king of Sodom wanted to make Abraham a rich man. And Abraham said, no, I don't want your wealth. I don't want it to be said that the king of Sodom has made me wealthy. Then there was the fatherhood test. He failed that test, took Hagar. Then the farewell test, when when Sarah said, get rid of this boy, I don't want him associating with our son. And God said, Abraham, send Hagar and Ishmael away, listen to Sarah. He passed that test. Now we come to the faith test. And he passes this test. Abraham sacrifice Isaac. Isaac's the son of promise. Now folks, we, we don't understand this initially up front. In fact, this chapter right here, this text, is the very text that Larry King, Larry King Live, have you ever seen Larry King Live? This chapter right here is... The very chapter, he says, that has kept him from believing in God. It's it's a chapter many people today continue to have problems with. But there's a couple of things that we need to understand. The cultures around Abraham... The pagan cultures practiced child sacrifice. Was God pleased with it? None. But they practiced child sacrifice. I believe what's going on here, God is saying, I just I'll, Abraham, I want it to be shown. That you love me as much as these pagans love their false gods. I think that's what's going on. That's the reason for the test. So that Abraham's true allegiance will be shown. Now it's very clear God didn't intend for him to go through with this. Because God stops it. But it's, it's simply to show, to see where Abraham's heart lies and to show that, that Abraham truly does love God the most. And the book of Hebrews says that very thing, doesn't it? That Abraham knew that if he went through with it, that God could raise the dead. Yes, exactly. So what you're saying, in other words, I, I, I mean like that, I go back to Genesis, Genesis 12, where God told me he was going to be a great nation. Right. see that's your your second question is accurate and it's along the lines of what bill is saying um, because your first your first part was that he thought what now well, that 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 God Yeah, that, now that I I don't think would be the right way of understanding it. That he thought that, that God is not going to have him do it. The proper way, I think, what you went on to say is he knew even if he did. It, he assumed he's got to go through with it. But he knew that God could raise the dead. Because God had given the promises that would come through Isaac. So I think Abraham, from his standpoint of view, thought he he was going through with it. But along with that, he knew what God could do. Yes. Yes. Until we, we're going to go and we will come back. So he knew, he knew good, even if he went through with it, God was able to raise the dead. Sure. And and not only do we see that in the text, but again, that's what we see in in Hebrews and in Romans 4. And, Romans 4. and folks, one thing we have to do when New Testament writers... Shed light on Old Testament text. New Testament writers, how are they writing? They're writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So when a New Testament writer says, this is what that Old Testament character was thinking, We need to go with that. Because the New Testament writer is writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to speculate. If the New Testament writer says, here's what they were thinking, then we can know, here's what they were thinking. See, in in the text about Lot, we would assume Lot seems like an unsavory character through and through. And yet, in the New Testament, what does Peter in 2 Peter say about Lot? He was a righteous man, and he was tormented in his soul by what he saw the men of Sodom doing. So, Lot, from the Genesis accounts, seems like a pretty unsavory character in some ways, but the New Testament shows us He's not so bad after all. You see what I'm saying? We have to allow the New Testament shed light on the old because the New Testament writers were writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But, again, keep in mind, we know that God was, even, could God have raised him from the dead? Yes. But, we know that even given the fact that God could raise the dead, God did not intend for him to go through with it. God didn't intend for him to go through with it. God stopped him. He he's just he's revealing Abraham's heart to see again here's what the pagans do is he committed enough that he's going to do this. Ed Yeah. And the only way I can know whether you're trusting me or trusting him is that is going back. Good point. Very good point. Well, folks, I've got tons more in this chapter. Uh, it's clear that we're not going to finish. Uh, I was hoping we would. But we'll come back in two weeks and we'll jump right back in where we left off. Okay? Because... There's there's such richness here. We haven't even begun to plunge the depths of it yet, and and I don't want to hurry that along. So stay tuned, okay? Stay tuned. Let me ask you a question, because I, I I I know one person anyway. Is this is this a a chapter that has Ever deeply troubled you? Raise your hand if it has. Is this a chapter that has ever troubled you? Ask about chapter, eight. I, a chapter. I know. Talking about sacrifice in Isaac. Is this a chapter that has ever troubled you? Yeah. Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. I know it's a chapter. Connie says boy that's that's one that really challenges you well, but, right to this passage and like I mentioned Larry King Live says it's the passage that has kept me from believing but when we understand what all is going on in God's intention it it, it shouldn't trouble us. But anyway, we'll talk more about it.